we're in a season, theology for everyone, because theology is for? Everyone. There you go, theology's for everyone. You are a theologian, whether you wanna be or not. Our children are theologians. We are all theologians, and we have to know what we believe. So I'm gonna read you, and we're doing Theology of God again, right? This will be the adult version, right? Okay, so here, here is the doctrinal statement that we believe and we talk about a theology of God. We believe in the goodness and unity of the one true and living God who is the eternal self-existent one and has revealed himself as the one being in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 6 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give to you today are to be on your hearts. Jesus echoes the Shema later on when he's asked, what, what shall we do? How shall we live like you? How do we conduct ourselves? And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. First Timothy 2.5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. John 17, three. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Um, really quick, I need to preface this by saying this is not exhaustive at all. There is no way we could do a theology of God in 30 minutes and, and cover everything there is to know or to, to believe about God, okay? So I, I believe in contextual theology. I love a theology that's contextual for where we are, who we are, what we're walking through. So I think our, our theology of God today is going to be contextual to where we are, where culture is, and who we are, but I don't want you walking away here saying, oh, you didn't say God was love, and I thought God is love. God is love. I didn't have time to add the God is love part in, okay? So I'm going to share with you uh, a contextual version of a theology of God to get you started on a foundation of, of who God is. Who in here remembers the run rule? You have good memories or bad memories of it? Run rule, sports, baseball, wake up. Where are we at? Where's my baseball players? You remember, you remember the run rule, right? 15 after 3, 10 after 5? Come on, 15 after three, 10 after five. You remember the run rule. The run rule, for those of you that don't know, is uh, this is where I miss my brother, Coach Deggs. Coach Deggs would be texting me right now, shouting me down about the run rule. You know about that run rule. We've handed out that run rule. Here's the run rule. If you, as a baseball team, got up 15 runs after three innings, the game was over. It was to save the other middle school boys' baseball team humiliation, Okay what it was for. If you were up 10 runs after five, the game was over. And then in the midst of the run rules that you had, you also had uh, kind of this, this code, if you will, about baseball. And the code was, that, you know, you didn't, if you were up 10 runs after three innings, you didn't run up the score. And you mainly did that through base running, so you would be on third base and a guy would single and you wouldn't run home and score the run. You would rock a double to the fence and then just stay on first base and slow down. You know, you, you had this graciousness about you that you, you did when you were playing and you were beating the snot out of somebody. Well, when I got to college, that all changed. 
In fact, our college coach, super intense guy, I loved him. He called us all together, all the rookies, he called us rookies, all of the first year freshmen or redshirt freshmen, he called us together and said, listen, everything that you learned about baseball in little league, middle school, and high school, forget it. This is a new world for you now. This is big boy ball, and we expect you to be big boys, right? So we're like, okay, cool, we're, we're good, and we you know, practiced hard and played hard and everything else. Well, we had our first fall game against Baker University, and we show up to Baker, and I mean, we were on fire. We were ripping the baseball. We couldn't not get a hit. They couldn't field the ball for anything. So we're just, we are running the score up. First inning, we knocked out their ace and we just kept rolling through their bullpen, right? We were just mowing them down, hitting the ball like crazy, playing really, really well. And so we were up like 12, 13 runs, something like that. And I was on second base. I'll never forget this, all right? So I'm on second. We're up like 12, 13 runs. There's no outs. And I, I get a lead off, and a guy behind me comes up, Jeremiah Eisenhelter, he rips a ball to the gap. And I mean, just crushes the ball. And I thought, man, we're up 13 runs. I'll just, you know, jog into third. And then I stopped at third, and they're still trying to field the ball, and I'm standing on third. And coach explodes. What are you, Cunningham, get your head in the game. What are you doing? And I'm like, golly, what is wrong with him? We're up 13 runs, right? And he's like, come on, wake up and run the bags. You know, he's yelling at me. So then I get back to the dugout. And when I get back to the dugout, he looks at me and says, what, what are you thinking? And I said, uh, coach, I thought we were up like 13 runs. And, and you know, we were going to, he said, listen to me. He said, we don't stop. It's their job to stop us. He said, this isn't Little League anymore. You play your game. He said, you're playing their game, and we don't play their game. We play our game. It's not our job to stop. It's their job to stop us. Fire you up or what, right? Right? I'm like, I'm ready to play, right? But, you know, when, when I, this is dangerous, right? Because that's a, that's a merciless, no grace, we, no holds barred, we take everything, right? And using that illustration to describe God can be dangerous. God is merciful, God is compassionate, God is gracious. We know those things about God. But I feel like there is this danger with us when we begin to think of our relationship with God as this codependent relationship where God comes down and plays our game. Where I pray something and it's God's job to come down and it's God's job to do what I'm asking him to do. And there may even be this mental manipulation involved where like, well, God, I need you to do this. And if you don't do this, God, I'm going to have doubts about you. And I'm going to be frustrated with you. And I'm going to be annoyed with you. And I'm going to question you. So I need you to come play my game. And here is what we have to understand. God does not play my game, we play his. God does not play my game, we play his. God is not dependent on me. He is not, to, it is a, it is, it's theological error to say that God would have a dependence. Because then he can't be all sufficient. He can't be all sustaining. He can't be God. If God needed me, then that means I'm God. He's not. I don't need a God dependent on me. I need a God that I can depend on. 
I need a God that I can go to and say, I don't know what I'm doing. I have no clue what's happening right now. I don't know all of the answers, but I know you do. And I need you to be with me. And I need to play your game. We have to understand that. And, and listen, it, it's not a matter of God doesn't want to come down. It's what he did through Christ. We understand that, right? He already has. He already has. What happens when they asked him for a sign? He said, I don't owe you a sign. You had a sign, and you didn't even believe it when you had it. In other words, God said, play my game for once. Don't expect me to come play yours. It rolls into our orthodoxy of what we believe, okay? We have three sections to theology for everyone. We've been covering them every week. There's orthodoxy, what do I believe? There's orthopathy, what does that do to my heart? How does that change my heart? And then there's orthopraxy, how do I practice that? How do I put that into practice? Practical, contextual theology is orthodoxy, orthopathy, orthopraxy, okay? Our orthodoxy is this, God is God, I am not. You don't realize how liberating of a statement that is. God is God, and I am not. Understand this, nowhere in the Bible does God attempt to prove himself. It's already assumed that God is God. It is already implied that God is God. From the very first verse of scripture, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God. It's implied, he's there. He started it, he's the beginning, he's the source, he's the all-eternal one, he's the all-sufficient one. Everything was made through him, by him, and in him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. When Moses encountered God at the burning bush and God said, go to my people, and Moses said, who do I tell them sent me? Listen to what he says, Exodus 3, 14. God replied to Moses, I am who I am. Right? What you mean? You don't need a name for me. I am who I am. Go tell them the I am is here. Go tell them the one, the God, the eternal one. It doesn't matter what you call me. I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Exodus 20, verse 2, he redefines himself to the beginning. He says, I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of slavery. Isaiah 51, 12. I, yes, I am the one who comforts you. So why are you afraid of mere humans? who wither like the grass and disappear. I love Romans 1:20. I have people ask me sometimes, hey, uh, what about tribes that may never hear of the Orthodox God that we believe in? What, what about people who may, may never hear about that? Romans 1:20 leaves no excuse. For ever since the world was created, People have seen the earth and sky through everything God made. They can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. You can't go out there and look and see and go to the ocean and go to the Grand Canyon and go to the mountain ranges and not look and think, God has to be majestic creator in nature. How did this just happen? He says, it's you, you, you live and breathe and see and experience who God is. I love what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 3.11. 
Skip two down, guys. This is the same thing. He says, yet God has made everything beautiful for its own time. He has planted eternity in the human heart. Circle that word eternity. But even so, people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. That word eternity is a deep, eternal, not go away longing. It's a longing and a burning in your soul that won't go away. It is there. It was put there at birth. It exists in you. It lives in you. It breathes. It is this crying out. That's why nature, that's why creation, that's why the world bears witness to him because it's right here. That longing that you hear, it's not for more money. It's not for another relationship. It's not for a new website. It's not for a new fantasy. None of those things will satisfy the longing of eternity that has been placed in our hearts, crying out for God. God is God. I am not. From creation to our hearts to transformation to everything in between, God is God. And it's his job to be God. It's our job to recognize our emptiness and turn to him. It's not, it is not God's job to meet. He's already done that through Jesus. He's already met me through Jesus. He's already bridged the gap through Jesus. He already has given us the Holy Spirit for those who receive Christ to empower us to live and do the things of Jesus. He's already done it. So it's not his job. It's our job to recognize our utter emptiness without him. How totally lost we would be without him. And then that turns us to him. That turns our life to him. I told you about my first car, 1985 Oldsmobile Cutlass. Bought it from an old Catholic man who smoked cigars and had the Hail Mary right on the front of the dash, right? Things smelled like cigars and old man. It was, it was awesome. It was a really cool car. And um, paid 500 bucks for it. I remember, uh, brakes barely worked. Rolled out of the driveway, tried to stop, backed into his mailbox on the way out. It was just this old, old beater of a car. And there was a time while I was driving it where the gas gauge got stuck on full. It was just stuck there and it wouldn't move. And I remember uh, figuring that out the hard way, right? Ran it out of gas and was stranded. I was like, but it says full. And I was like, but it's, it's kind of been full for like three weeks now. I don't know. I don't know really what's going on. So what I had to do is I had this notebook and I would, I would have this notebook, and every time I would go, I would fill up with gas, and then I would take the odometer, because it was one of those little dial ones. You know, there ain't nothing digital about this thing. It, was, it had the little, the little, like, as you drove, you could see the number turning, right, and then and it would land on the number. Some of you, I see the old people, hey, you remember that? Yeah, I remember those too, right? I was driving one of those. And so uh, I, would, I would go to the odometer, and I would write it down, and then I would add 300, and then as I was driving, I would know the number on the odometer because I knew I could get 300 miles uh, out of the, the gas tank when I filled it up. So I would drive and I would constantly be calculating and I'd constantly be looking at the odometer. I'd be looking here and I had a calculator and I, I would be figuring out how close I was to empty. And when, you, when you're a broke kid, you're like, okay, I got like three miles left and the gas station's two miles away and school's one mile away. I got it, right? I know I can, I know I can make this happen. 
happened, but it was crazy because you had to know when you were getting to empty. We have to come to a place where we recognize our emptiness. We realize and become fully comfortable in saying, I am not enough. I don't have enough. I, don't, I can't do enough. But God is more than enough. And the Holy Spirit can empower me beyond my inadequacies so that I can bring him glory because God is God. I am not. The quicker we settle into that, the quicker we'll begin to give him glory. So that's what we believe. God is God, I am not. How does that impact my heart? Here, here's what I love about this. God has no, there's nothing that God needs from me, right? He even says, if you don't worship me, the rocks will cry out in worship. Now here's the beautiful thing about that, that God has no need or dependence on me, yet he chose to give me everything. In other words, God did not need me, he wanted me. He desired me. He longed for relationship with me so much that someone like me who has nothing to offer him, what does Paul say? Our righteousness is like filthy rags before him. I have nothing to offer him, yet he, in his grace, in his mercy, in his loving kindness, in his goodness, was willing to give his only son for me. When I have nothing left that I could offer him, he was willing. That's the beautiful picture of grace. Ask yourself this, parents. If you had somebody that you knew of that was dying and you had zero need for them, you had no dependence on them, there was nothing that they could do for you, but they were dying, would you give your only child up for them? Like, I mean, call me selfish. Maybe I'm not Christ-like, but I'd be like, what? Who? I don't know them. Forget it. But that's exactly what God in his grace did. In other words, how does God being God and I am not encourage my heart? God is living and gives me life. He did not have to. He had no need to. It was purely gracious merciful desire to reconcile a people who were running from him and rebelling from him to bring us back to him. That is God's love. That is God's mercy. That is God's compassion that he was willing, though we were sinners, he was willing to give his sinless son for us. God is living and God gives me life. Joshua 3, 10 says, today you will know that the Living God is among you. Hosea 1.10 1, says, Yet the time will come when Israel's people will be like the sands of the seashore, too many to count. Then at the place when they are told, you are not my people, it will be said, you are children of the living God. 1 Timothy 3.15, so that if I am delayed, you will know how people must conduct, conduct themselves in the household of God. This is the church of the living God, which is the pillar and foundation of the truth. Hebrews 9, 14, just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciences from sinful deeds so that we can worship the God is living. He is alive. He is living. He is alive. And he gives me 
life. I love there. I was reading a, a systematic theology book. They said this, this may be one of the most important things to understand, that God is living and God has given us life. In other words, Adam was born and Adam entered into sin and through Adam, sin and death has entered to all of us. Right? I'll, I'll read it to you. It's Romans 5 verse 12. Paul says, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. Remember Adam pre-sin? He was alive. He was alive. He was alive with God. He was alive in creation. He was born alive. Adam is the only person who was born alive. And then Adam, through sin, welcomed sin into the world so that all have sinned. John 3, 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already. He is a dead man walking, already dead, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So we are created in his image, born into sin. Created in his image, born into sin, that is born into a world of death, of sin, of destruction, right? So what did God do? 1 Corinthians 15, 22. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam. There you go. Everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. Ephesians 2, 21 through 22. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, you Gentiles are being made part of this dwelling where God lives by his spirit. He is alive and he gives us life. He is a life-giving God. I, uh, every now and then, I'll watch some of these old school televangelists on TV. Uh, my goodness, you talk about entertainment. It's better than the Disney Channel, right? They're just, they're just nuts, to be honest with you. I, I don't watch them for content. If I did, we wouldn't be doing a season on theology, right? But they're just wild. They're crazy. And some of the stuff that they'll say is like, what? I mean, it sounds cool, but let me check my Bible first, you know? And so I was watching this one, and it was this, this guy, and this is, this is old, old guy, passed, he's, he's already uh, passed away, but he was on there, and he was doing a deliverance service, and it was on TV. It was like 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night on TBN, so I'm like, all right, this will be awesome. And he's on there, and he's, he's delivering people, so he's inviting people to the stage, and as they're coming up, he's like, what do you need to be delivered from? And then he would, he would deliver them right there. And this one guy came up, and he, he said to him, the pastor, said to him, what do you need to be delivered from? And the guy said, smoking cigarettes. And he said, okay, all right, brother. He said, then I want you to pray after me. This is on TV, and this is, the crowd's packed, right? So he's got this microphone, he says, all right, I'm gonna deliver you from smoking cigarettes. I want you to pray this after me. He said, God, yeah, why do they always have that voice? God, 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 and the guy says, God. <laughs> and I kid you not, I, I lost it. He said, I want you to pray this, God. The guy says, God. And he said, kill me if I smoke another cigarette. <laughs> he holds the mic up to the guy. And I kid you, this dude went from to like, <laughs> like what? And, he, and I, I was rolling. He was like, kill me if I smoke another cigarette. Right? And I mean, you could tell this dude was like, 
uh-oh, better not be hanging out outside when it's raining and lightning out, right? I, I could be in big trouble. So I tried that on a homeless guy in Kansas City. I really did. I thought, man, this is great. So uh, I, I was in Kansas City, and there was this guy who needed money, and all I had was a $20 bill. And I was walking by, and he's like, man, I need any, anything you got would help me. I really need some money. And I was like, okay, I got a $20 bill, and I'll, I'll give it to you, but I want you to pray with me uh, as, after I give it to you. And he was like, okay, yeah, man, praise God. God bless you. You know, I'll pray with you. I was like, okay, awesome. I was like, here, I want you to pray with me. Dear God, he said, dear God, I said, if I use this money for drugs or alcohol, I use this money for drugs or alcohol, kill me. And he goes like this. He said, nah, dude, you can have it back. <laughs> At least he was honest, right? <laughs> I loved it. Here's the problem, though. That's bad theology. I should have never done that. Why? Because more than God wants to kill us, he wants to give us life. God doesn't want to kill you over not smoking cigarettes. God wants to deliver you and give you life beyond smoking cigarettes, right? God's desire is not to scare you with death so that you live in fear. It is to fill you with life so you live in faith. That's God's desire because God is living and God gives life. So all you that thought, I'm going to go practice that $20 pray and let God kill me trick, don't do it. That's not God's theology. God is living and God gives life. We need to remind ourselves of that. Because I, I, that was a funny story. It was a real story. It was a crazy story. But there are people who believe God is just continually mad at them. He's continually disappointed with them. He's continually frustrated with him. He's continually just asking himself, how can, I, how can I deal with it? And we have to realize God's deepest desire is relationship with us. That's why he gave us Jesus. He is living and gives us life. Yes, we disappoint him. Yes, we frustrate him. Yes, our disobedience drives him crazy. But more than that crazy, he wants to give us life. What happened when the people of Israel, Moses goes up on top of the mountain to get the Ten Commandments. He comes back down. They're all partying, going crazy, built a golden calf, did everything. And God says to Moses, I'm going to kill him. I'm so over these people. They have driven me nuts. I'm going to kill them. And Moses says, give them one more chance. And what does scripture say? God changed his mind. God changed his mind. He is living and he gives life. More than he wants to kill us, he wants to give us life. And life abundantly, okay? That encourages our heart and then our orthopraxy. What do we practice because of it? We trust in the goodness of God. So how do I live? And it's a combination of our orthodoxy and our orthopathy, right? We believe that God is God, that I am not. And we believe that God gives life and is living, okay? So I know that God is God and I know he is living and gives me life. So what is my only option to trust in his goodness? to trust in the one who has given me life, to trust in the one who gave his only son for me. That is my only option when it comes to him. I love Psalm 31, 19 through 20. The psalmist says, how great is the goodness you have stored up for those who fear you. 
You lavish it on those who come to you for protection, blessing them before the watching world. You hide them in the shelter of your presence, safe from those who conspire against them. You shelter them in your presence, far from accusing tongues. I love how you start. How great is your goodness. Listen, if it's not good yet, it's not God yet, because God ends with good. If it's not good yet, it's not God yet, because God is good, and he only does good. And whether that is through life or through death, and to die is gain, however it plays out, you know what the end is, and it is good. So how do we live in the tension? We know that God is good, and we know that he is living and gives life. We know that he is God, and I am not. So we're, we're sitting here saying the only option we have is the trust in the goodness of God, but it's not good yet. Maybe it's really hard right now. Maybe it's the furthest thing from good. How do I walk through that? One of my favorite verses, one of the first verses I memorize as a new Christian that I constantly fall back into when I find myself in that season of like, man, I know if it's not good, it's not God yet, but man, I'm ready for the good. Galatians 2 verse 20. As my old self has been crucified with Christ, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body. I love how he says that. I live in this shell. I live in this shell, but I'm not here, and it's not me, and I'm not in control. In other words, God is God. I am not. I am redeemed and saved, and I live in this shell, trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It is the walk of faith, the walk of life with a life-giving God who is good and who has given us life. And how do you do it? I, I had a friend who I just recently talked to on the phone. He's lost over 100 pounds. He's incredible what he's done. And I asked him, I said, how on earth did you do this, man? It's amazing. And he said, I made a commitment for one year. This is so cool. For one year, I made a commitment that every single day I would walk to the end of my driveway and back. And I was like, wait, what? Ain't no way you lost all that weight walking to the end of your driveway and back. And he said, no, listen. He said, here's what would happen. He said, I would get down, I would put on my shoes, and I'd get ready, and I'd say, all I have to do is go to the end of the driveway. And he said, I would walk down to the end of the driveway, and then all of a sudden I'd get to the end of the driveway, and he'd be like, well, I can't. I can't just stop here, right? Okay, I'll go down to the stop sign. So then he'd walk down to the stop sign. He'd get to the stop sign and he'd say, now I'm starting to feel kind of good. Maybe I could make a lap around the block. And then he'd make a lap around the block and then he'd, he'd finish it. And he said, when the first rainy day came, he said, the weather was terrible. It was raining. It was thunderstorming. It was nasty out. I put on my shoes. I opened up the door and I said to myself, ah. I'm like 44 days straight. I think I can skip today. And then he said, but I committed to myself I'd take the step. And so he took one step out, started raining, pouring on him. He walked out to the end of his driveway. He got out to the end of his driveway. He said he was soaking wet. And then he said, well, might as well be soaking wet anyway. I'm already drenched. Might as well keep going. He kept going. He said it was one of the longest walks he'd ever taken because he realized if he would just walk 
in the rain. He would walk in the difficulty. He would walk through those seasons when it's not good. He knew at the very end he would achieve his goal. And now he's posting pictures all slim and different clothes with 100 pounds gone, everything else. But we have to do the same thing. Even when it's not good, we have to keep walking in faith. We have no other choice because God is God, I am not. God is living and gives me life. The only thing I can do that's not dependent on me is trust in his goodness. And if it's not good yet, it's not God yet because we know how this whole thing ends. And it ends in good.